my assessment was two things. One, who was I with? How strong was it? How many people? And then I'd have to decide if it wasn't a winning hand, Yuri is behind me. <laughs> He's coming. <laughs> and you'd always come with the train, right? So if there's a group and they weren't working well together, like, yeah. come on, pull through. I'm yeah. thinking, you're not going to do it for me, bro. Yuri's behind me. Yuri's coming. Yeah. And it probably happened four or five times. <laughs> I think that's possibly the genesis of my nickname, U-Boat, maybe Garrison, you know? Like, you knew I was lurking out there and I might get you at some point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This episode of Fuerza, Inside the Mind of the Ridden Athlete, is made possible by our title sponsor, Team Adair Cross Country Mortgage. With the Affinity Program, Hopper Riders and their family can save up to $2,200 when financing your new home or existing home. With your dedicated loan officer, Team Adair provides personal and professional service. Myself, me, my family, my wife, we financed our home in the summer of 2020 in the midst of COVID. And it was by far, by far the best experience we've ever had working with a lender. As a direct lender, their communication was prompt and professional, and we closed quickly. We have saved over $400 a month by financing. And let me tell you, this has really helped our family and our home business during these difficult times. For information and to get started, go to crosscountrymortgage.com slash affinity slash grasshopper or Click on the link on Grasshopper webpage, grasshopperventureseries.com. Today's guest on Fuerza Inside the Mind, the ridden athlete, is my good friend, Yuri Hauswald. I remember first meeting Yuri a few years before Grasshopper, maybe 1996. Yuri was living in Petaluma, where he grew up, and I was out in Occidental riding bikes and messing around, living the life of uh well bike monk for better or less yuri and i also at the same time both started teaching elementary school he was teaching in Petaluma and i was teaching in tamales so we had that in common that uh, we were passionate about education and uh, we absolutely love to get out and shred on our bikes your house wall is more than just an employee for goo where he oversees the professional athletes he's an ambassador to the sport as the winner of the 2015 Unbound, formerly known as Dirty Kanza, Yuri made his mark on the gravel scene. It was fantastic to see him take that victory, knowing uh, what a warrior he was. Yuri and I started out racing mountain bikes with uh, Salsa and Soulcraft, um, and he was at the first, second, third, fourth, fifth. He's been at Grasshoppers every year for the last 25 years. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. We'll talk about uh, gravel, mountain bikes, education, um, basically everything that we uh, have at the tip of our tongue. So stay tuned and sit back and enjoy the conversation with Yuri Hauswald. We have a special guest with us tonight in the house all the way from Petaluma to Sebastopol, Yuri Hauswald. Yuri, thanks for joining me here at Fuerza. Oh, Miggy, I am so excited to, to chat with you tonight. We go so far back, so there's lots of good stories to tell. Yeah, and, and if those listening, uh, just sit back and pour a cold one because we're going to ramble on for a little bit, I'm sure. Yeah, look out, people. So Fuerza, the name of the podcast, Yuri, um, you know, it, 
this name goes back a long ways. Um, and inside the mind of the ridden athlete, for me, um, there's lots of places we can go with that. But Fuerza, do you remember where that name I, came from? I do. I coined it, if I remember correctly. And it was when you were racing pro, maybe you had just started racing pro. And I think I started screaming at you at Sea Otter Classic, possibly. I can't remember what year. Um, but for those that don't know, Fuerza is like strength in Spanish. And Miggy speaks fluent Spanish. And uh, I like cheering for him. So I was like yelling, you know, strength at him all the time. I think that's my memory. But like maybe there's <laughs> you have a different version. That um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah, once we once the story is told, that becomes the truth or layers over. I, that sounds close. I do remember sometime you asked me, hey, how do you, we were lined up together somewhere. Like, how do you say strength? And I was like, Fuerza. I was like right before the gun went off. Yeah, And, uh, you know, that's a big part uh, of writing is, you know, I think when you're younger and just starting, you think about the physical strength, like how strong can I be? But uh, the mental strength and the perseverance is, is such a big piece of that. Oh, wow. That's that could be a deep rabbit hole because I've actually learned that lesson more so in the last five or six years, ever since I did my first Unbound Dirty Kanza. Uh, the power of the mind, but we can we can go there later. But yeah, Fuerza is a very fitting title. I also, for those that don't know me, I have a look, dude. There's a raccoon. We've got a guest. We've got our first guest here at Miguel's. We've got a trash panda. Literally, I'm not kidding. People sitting at his door, watching, listening. Um, but dude, I think you knew uh, this. This character on my arm is strength. You know, these this my first tattoos. That's father, and that strength were for my dad when he was dying from cancer. So strength. You know, it 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 means a lot between us for sure for multiple reasons. Yeah, th thanks for sharing that. You know, and and I know that your dad uh, is a big part of your life. He's passed. He always, you know, was a guiding principle with you and, and encouraging. And I really uh, admired that. I remember some of the times we were down at Sea Otter together, and he took everybody out to dinner. And he was such a supporter of what you love to do. You know, he worked his ass off in in the trades and concrete, and and you're an English major. And uh, a didn't bike take over the family business. Didn't yeah. take over the family <laughs> business. The only son, a bike yeah. raiser, but man, he loved you to death and supported you in your in your path. Oh, he he did. He and my mom always gave me wings, which was which was the greatest gift ever. You know, encouraged me to to chase my passions, even if it meant you know living in a van down by the river, literally, you know, chasing the the race circuit and riding bikes all the time and being a bit of a dirtbag. But yeah, he was a uber fan. Uh, just loved watching me progress in the sport. And I guess, you know, one of my biggest bummers is that he never got to see me turn pro, you know. I turned semi-pro, uh, but he never got to see me turn pro. Not that that changed anything. We could talk about that later too. But you know, like, what it means to to get those three letters on your license because you had them on your license too, so. Yeah, yeah. W w was it semi-pro or was it super expert? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about categories that most people in, in who may be listening have no clue because now they're like cat one, cat two to cat three. But back in our day, it was beginner sport expert. And then to try to help, you know, manage that cataclysmic or the galactic gap between expert and pro, they had semi-pro for a while. Yeah, they snuck that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I barely made it into semi-pro. Yeah, unfortunately, when, when that happened, that was a bummer. But, you know, locally, you know, could race pro, but then going to the national circuit, you had to race, you know, race semi-pro, go into Deer Valley or yeah. or different different places yeah. like that. that. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, you know, I, I want to go back to where I think we met. Um, I remember 
my, my, my first memory of meeting you was maybe something to do with, with at Gianni's. I don't know if at the West Pole. Um, I imagine you in the mud puppy kit that you guys made um, coming out to the, to the races. And the West County at that time was a very special spot for all of us. And it started with Tom Snap Ganella, just who was a plumber, but opened up the bike shop in his family's, his dad's old uh, place across from the hardware store. And it was just a home for us to hang out. When, when, when did you start coming out? west shall i say yeah so just to give some folks a little background on me i didn't pick up a bike until 94 i played lacrosse in college when i graduated from cal i went and taught back east and that's where i discovered mountain biking some friends some teachers you'd appreciate this both of us are past i'm a past elementary school teacher mig still currently teaches but they shared their passion with me and it was riding and they let me borrow their bike and so that's how i got into mountain biking when I moved back to Petaluma, which is where I was born and raised, uh, I somehow fell in with a crew of Groms from Petaluma High who rode mountain bikes. This was like Eric Barton and Lauren and Aaron Timmel and a few other kids. And I think they knew about Gianni. I didn't know about the Gianni events, the West Pole events. But that was probably like 97-ish for me, 96, 97, somewhere in there. And some of my fondest memories, like foundational memories, were doing some of the first West Pole races and just getting utterly throttled. But that was such a good, like, introduction to the sport. The whole Gianni crew, it was like, you know, and I mean, you, I got really, really lucky. I was blessed, I think, with, like, my entry into the bike world because I fell right into, like, Gianni, the Ibis crew, Salsa, like folks that I'm still friends with today, like 25, 26 years later, and it was just dumb luck. And then just, it was such a supportive, like network of people that it, it just, you know, I kept chasing my passions and here I am today, you know, 27 years later, whatever it is, yeah, still it, riding my bike. Yeah. Right. I mean, for me, that's where I found my people. So the way I got into it, you know, I, growing up in Sebastopol in 1988, um, was moving, was graduating, Still playing team sports, but my sister uh, had started riding road bikes, and she was living in Santa Rosa, and uh, was dating uh, Wes Williams, and uh, really wanted to get a touring bike as my high school graduation present um, because my uh, drafting teacher had always had the touring bikes around, and, and would talk about touring Europe as we were drafting, doing drafting classes, and she said, "Yeah, these guys are doing this cool thing called mountain biking." I was like, "Ah, sounds sounds pretty good." But but you know that's it was Wes at the time when I was riding and he said yeah the guys out in Gianni are doing a kind of a cool thing you know um, and my plan was to just touch base for a while in Sebastopol travel get to Latin America go to grad school etc and uh, I just fell in love got to know Sonoma County again as a cyclist it's you know to grow up someplace it's like growing up in Tahoe or in Vail or someplace, you know, not being, not being a, or Montana, not being an outdoors person and then coming back to rediscover that. Um, I have the same experience. I mean, you know, I grew up in Petaluma, but I played all the stick and ball sports, didn't, you know, ride bikes. And then when I came back in my early 20-ish, mid-20s, started discovering Sonoma County and the West County via bike. And it's, you know, it's still magical to me. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that then that Sonoma County borders Marin, you know, once we started going there, you know, in the early 90s and, and riding there. You mentioned the Gianni uh, races. I think we called those Jungle Cross. We, there's a little area that's owned by the Union Hotel where they do the fireman's the Redwood Grove. We carved some trails, and it was incredibly uh, technical. 
And in all horrible conditions, I got poison oak. Uh, we raced. basically every race I did there. The poison oak was miserable. <laughs> yeah, so you know, and I think that's what brought some people at North. I remember, like you know, Ferentino and Richter and the Santa Cruz folks coming up, and Rick the Stick. Um, you know, so it was a pretty tight knit group. And and I'm thinking about how things were communicated back then, right? So like when I started the Hoppers in '98, I just I photocopied maps. And I physically brought them to Glenn at the shop at NorCal. And I think I just called some people. I called, you know, Rick and uh, I don't know. It was just by, by word of mouth. And that's the same thing with Johnny and the West Pole races. I think, I think we had to call. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember how I discovered the series, but I think it's through the Mud Puppy Kids, the high school team that I eventually started. Um, word of mouth, falling in with the right crew. I was going to mention that, you know, Marla Streb kind of took me under her wing at that time. And I came to some of the Jungle Cross West Pole with her, she and Rachel oh, really? Lloyd. From, they were part of the Marine oh, with crew. Rachel, right. Yeah. So, um, like I said, I was really blessed to, like, fall right in with some really amazing and motivational people. You know, some of my yeah. first, like, mentors in the sport, too. Yeah, and Rachel's still a slayer. I went down to do the, <laughs> the day law this summer. I hadn't for a long time. I ended up riding with uh, she and Jim Hewitt. And, uh, oh, she's just 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 killing it yeah yeah, yeah she's she's a great rider. those those are good memories you, did you make it ever make it out to the ring of fire when we did that i did one ring of fire i think i did the last ring of fire i even did a trail work day there and got poison oak i do remember <laughs> that but i definitely did a ring of fire i did the ring of fire where matt neary met his future partner I don't know if that helps at the, us at the Ring settle, of Fire. At the Ring of Fire, I that met Tara there. On a year. I met Tara. I yeah. met my wife at the Ring of Fire. There you go. Yeah, that was. I, I There's think, something in the water there. I think that was the year that we went through five kegs, and then and then uh, Scout went and got two more. <laughs> yeah, th- th- those those were big parties. Big parties back there. Um, tell me a little bit. You know, when we're thinking about riding and. Um, when we first, I remember some epic battles. Unfortunately, I didn't take notes from our from our grasshopper days, but I did go back. It always had this memory of of Don Winkle and you battling. There's always there's like battles that I've had, but it was always. It's, I guess I remember it because Don would always be like, hey, "Got him again." <laughs> you know, you so, know what? Some things haven't changed. You know, hopefully, hopefully Uncle Don is listening. Some things haven't changed. He's still hunting me down. Yeah, he's or still, I'm hunting him down. He's yeah. still he's still hunting you down. <laughs> So I want to just remember one story we had with, you had a, I mean, you've always been a van guy. Yes. You had, it must've been a Ford, that white one. <sighs> that was a Ford Econo line that I bought off a painter. That you and I and my sister drove to Big Bear <laughs> in to do the stage race there. Yeah. Is yeah, the King right? of the Mountain. They used to have the King of the Mountain stage race. Yeah, I remember sleeping sleeping in that as you drove there. Yeah. I think we stopped every 80 miles to fill up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've had a few adventures in that van. I remember one time going to Park City with George and like the roof was vibrating so bad because of the wind that we had to like hold it up. Um, but yeah, I also, I, I've, I've spooned in that van too with Neary going to Big Bear one year with he and, and Sherry. So yeah, that, that was a special van. Yeah, I think in, in that Big Bear one, I remember you and I had, a, had quite, quite a battle there. There was a cross-country race where not having raced at elevation, I went super hard because I had really good form and just went backwards after that. And uh, I, think, I think you got me that day. And then we had a downhill race. 
And the downhill was a good one. So you dressed up. I've, you had some wig and some weird hat on. Hawaiian shorts. And I tacoed my front wheel like four turns into it and decided to shoulder my bike and just run down the mountain and finish. And there's a classic photo. I have it in my garage of me running down the mountain with the race photo. And if you look closely, you're coming in the background because you got me because you had a mechanical too that you had to fix. But you got me. <laughs> yeah, the fact that we were still competitive. Yeah. We still, so my mechanical was, you know, back then, I, you know, the stage races, we, didn't, we weren't able to change, change bikes. I mean, we had one bike to ride, hardtail, 26-inch yep. rim brake for the downhill at Big Bear. And my chain fell off, and it wrapped two or three times around my, my crank arm on the outside, and I'm having to break it. And, and got, I mean, we were probably like last and second to last, but we were competing. <laughs> Definitely, but we were still chasing each other. That's great. But we're not competitive. No, not at all. Right. So, you know, I don't remember when it happened, but I know that um, you you transitioned into more uh, ultra endurance. And I think it started with 24-hour mountain bike races. And uh, that's when I realized that um, I was not not cra as crazy as you. And But <laughs> I don't know how we measure that, but like 24 hours, like that sort of, it's not, it became a fad for a bit. I mean, yeah. it became big. Uh, the team, I know it's still a thing, but not, it's not on people's list so much. And I think, in fact, you won won a world championship, and then they pulled some weird thing like this isn't the world championship. Or, mm. but anyways, you're were, you're were doing wells in 24 hour races, right? Yeah. So I I want to step back. It was actually a Gianni member, Matt Neary, who encouraged me to do my first 24 hour race because he noticed in our you know weekend rides and trainings that I would get stronger as the day went on, you know, I'm not very fast out of the gate, but you know, give me some runway and I can go for a while. And so in 2005, he challenged me to do the 24 hours of adrenaline down at Laguna Seca, which was, as you mentioned, part of the big, that was the hot, like 24 hour circuit at that time. Um, I sort of caught the tail end of, of that rising star and Matt was my mechanic and my wife was in my pit and my buddy, uh, Veggie T, Tim, um, was in my pit, and uh, I ended up winning that race, which, unbeknownst to me, qualified me to go to world championships that year. So then I went to Conyers, Georgia, uh, and got ninth. And then subsequently, like the next year, I think I won 24 Hours of Adrenaline again and did a few more 24-hour races. Um, but yeah, that's actually what allowed me to turn pro, you know, because back then you would send in your results to the governing body and cross your fingers and write, write a nice letter and hope that they might give you those three letters. And I eventually got them because of my 24 hour racing, not because I was good as a semi-pro. I was pack fodder as a semi-pro, but, um, it was long distances. So I have to thank Matt Neary, you know, stick boy for, uh, encouraging me to, to do that. But we talked earlier about the mental game and as we've aged, we've appreciated it more. And I think that was the beginning of me really realizing that the mental component of riding is, uh, you know, I mean, man, sometimes I feel like it's almost like 70% of what you're doing out there, you know, is just keeping your head straight and like moving forward and positive mantras. Um, so yeah, that's how, that's how I turned pro and got into 24 hour racing. Vanessa, my wife asked me to stop doing them. Um, because she didn't like what it did to me physically. Uh, and so then I transitioned more into like eight or 10 hour, 100 mile. When Bike Monkey had its eight hour race, I did that solo all the time. And that sort of dovetailed into me discovering gravel in 2013. 
Yeah, the mental part and the suffering, you know, I asked I, to, with, with Peter Stetton a while back, you know, and like how much that matters. And he's like, you know, that, that's, that's the difference, the ability to suffer. And obviously at the, at the world tour level, it, that's, that's a different thing, but it's not at the same time. I mean, what an athlete like yourself, that space that you're in in those 24 hours and, and that, that, that toughness. Um, so do you, did you develop, so you found that you, you had that fortitude, but that's also something, it's, it's not just that you, you have that, you have to train that, you have to become better at that. Tell me a little bit about that process of, of seeing that you're good at that and then you know, actually developing that ability to, to do well in those longer races. Yeah, so uh, you know, obviously I started riding more consistently, longer hours. I was still a school teacher at this time. I taught elementary school, for those that don't know, for 11 years, first, second, and third grade. And for a number of years, my district allowed me to job share. You would know this, MIG, where I worked three days a week, and then I had a partner who worked Thursday, Friday. And that allowed me to train, have dedicated days to ride big, uh, allowed me to travel to events. And so I just tried to start being more consistent with my training, uh, maybe a little bit more precise. I didn't start, I, I've only worked with a coach like once or twice in my life, and that was right before uh, Unbound Gravel in 2015. Um, and then, you know, dialing in nutrition. Nutrition is such a huge part of long uh, days on the bike, like figuring out my fueling. Um, you know, it's, it's a work in progress, but, uh, you know, just figuring out what liquids, what solids, what gels work for your system over time because your palate will change. So it's constantly been changing, but that's when I started, you know, developing those different skills and like really practicing them, you know, eight hours of bogs, the bike monkey event. That was a, one of my favorite events. I can't, I probably four or five times solo gears, single speed, just loved that event. And doing it totally self-supported with your own pit. You know, there was something like really exciting about that or to me challenging, um, but having like your routine, every time you come through, you drop a bottle, you grab a bit of this, it's in the mouth, it's in, you're out. And like be super like NASCAR with your pits. That's how I was at 24 hour racing. Like I would never get off my bike. I would just straddle my bike. Bottles would be changed, some food grabbed, maybe some words exchanged out, you know, like 45 seconds or something. Um, so like, you know, just honing in on all the little tips and things and tricks that I could do nutritionally and training wise just helped me develop that. And I, and I spent a lot of time on my bike, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough now that I have a job that my uh, work and play are so blurred that riding my bike is kind of part of my job because most people think I don't have a job. Right. And so <laughs> your job at Goo has changed over the years yes. and currently you're working with athletes. Is that right? Yeah. Tell, my, tell me, what, do you, what is your job description now? Uh, my elite athlete manager and community manager is my current title. Um, when I first, you know, so I've been a Goo athlete for about 15 years. Um, they were one of my first sponsors. They were actually one of my first sponsors to ever give me a little travel stipend years ago before I stepped into the bike industry, which was really, really cool. Uh, but I manage all of our elite athletes now. So everything from like a three-time world champion Ironman to, you know, runners and masters athletes and cyclists, ultra runners, folks who've won Western States, stuff like that. So um, it's a really fun job. I feel like uh, being an athlete still myself to some degree, it allows me to, to walk and talk the talk, you know, and be more authentic in my interactions with them. And have a deeper empathy and understanding for what they're going through on like the sponsorship side. 
because that's the dance that I do with them. I actually just finished all of my contracts like today. They're going out in DocuSign like right now as we speak, you know, signing contracts with folks. So that feels good and exciting for me to like support these people. Cause like I say, I do have a real deep appreciation for what they do, whether it's running hundred miles or swimming, you know, in between these crazy distance, whatever, whatever it is. So that's my current role. I also like, I go to camps for events, you know, and I'm a, like a ride guide. I work with media um, and I still race myself too. So a lot of different things. And so let's get into a little bit of a current event right now because things yeah. are changed or there's a little shift here with the Lifetime Grand Prix. You yeah. have athletes who were invited and athletes who were not invited to that? You know, that's a t- it's a tough question. So I think what they're really up against, like I like the idea of it. I think anything that they can do, they're trying to inject some excitement, obviously some dollars to entice all the top riders. Um and anytime you try to uh, like reserve some spots in these events that are already like highly sought after, right? Waitlisted, hard to get into, lotteries, this, that, right? You you've wait years to get into them. That could be contentious. So I could see why some people might have been pissed off about the fact that 30, 30 and 30 were reserved. I think it was 30 men, 30 women for, for uh, the Grand Prix. But I do like the idea itself. I think it's, it's, it's great. It's going to add some excitement. It's going to get people to do events that they're maybe not comfortable with. I mean, you probably saw that article that Pete just had in, in News where he thinks his biggest threat is Keegan Swenson, a mountain biker, you know, and you have Pete Stetna, who is the top gravel racer in the country right now. And his biggest fear is a mountain biker. That's cool. You know? So, um, there's never going to be, unfortunately with these big events, like there's never going to be a, a perfect remedy or, or, or answer to who gets in, who doesn't get in. Is it a lottery? Is it truly a lottery? You know, all these different things that come up. So, I think it was smart of them not to gobble up a ton of spots right now for the first year and see how it goes. But yeah, I know some people who had their feelings hurt for sure. I'm friends with some people who didn't get chosen. So that, that sounds familiar, uh, like mountain bike and gravel over six months and leaving one out. It seems like I've heard of a series that has done something similar to that. <laughs> Maybe called the Grasshopper Series? Is, it, is that what? Yeah. I uh, said so they're definitely not the $250,000 no. carrot there. I've never seen that unless that was in the they, fine they've print. Left yeah. out, they've left out the road, which I understand yeah. at that level, the logistics of that. But for, you know, when we started doing this, purposely just messing with my friends with the hoppers, where, <laughs> you know, everyone was happy. The mountain bike friends, you and Duncan and Nathan <laughs> and Jim Mosier and George, everyone was happy with old Kaz to get ready for sea otter and then like a month later we had king ridge which was 80 miles in like six hours like what are you doing it's too long yeah. and the roadies so mixing it up but uh, the, but yeah i mean so the grasshopper was a good example early template you know what 20 or is it 25 25 years 25 years you know way back when your idea of you know putting together mixed terrain events that really forced you to think about what weapon you chose or what weapon you chose and then how did you modify it, you know, to make it better for like that one section of road that you thought you might get yeah. dropped on or whatever it was. So and, um, and being consistent over time. I mean, I remember, for example, King Ridge and we would we would do King Ridge and then drop down Salt Point on the dirt. Yeah. And Jeff Kabush, I remember one time, you know, won that on his road bike, you know, and we were we were all on our road bikes for that stuff. Yeah. You flatted. So the idea of being consistent. Um, 
over time and, and getting those things together. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. It'll be interesting. I know that the media is going to gobble it up. It's yeah. going to be big. The attention's going to be there. Um, you know, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that But I was just wondering in terms of you as, as taking care of your athletes because it's fascinating to me that being a gravel pro is a thing right now. And it's yeah. great in that people are – finding a way and it's definitely on the, it's it's growing and there's growing pains with events and what that means but um you know when you talk about a chance to make a livelihood it's something if and you're representing athletes and they're going to put things on the calendar and and if you're not part of something um you know it happens to whole teams in europe they're not their team isn't included yeah um, but I, it's different when it's an individual um yeah i mean like you said growing pains you know there were some big events left out uh, so, you know, it's going to force some pros to choose. Uh, some events do have prize purses separate of the Grand Prix, so that might entice people. Yeah, it's, do you it's think, tricky times. Do you think this, obviously, uh, Lifetime has been on a rampage of investing in, in the sport and buying up so much. Um, this move at this time, uh, it seems strategic where UCI is going to be have the gravel world, and there's been resistance of event promoters, myself included. Yeah. Not necessarily that that's a bad idea, but the way it was done and the timing of it and who, um, because uh, you're going to have something else, a significant calendar item, as opposed to popping in and doing the gravel. Do you, what's, what's your view on, on those two things uh, juxtaposed? Yeah, so the UCI coming into gravel, I actually talked to Ian Boswell this year at Sea Otter about this. Um, well, I should also qualify this by saying that like to somebody of, of my age and where I'm at in my career, the UCI coming into gravel right now, like doesn't, doesn't bother me because I'm not motivated, motivated by that carrot in any way, shape or form. And that doesn't, I, I wouldn't go to any UCI gravel event cause I'm not chasing points. Um, and I also feel like their model of racing, um, won't appeal to like 95% of gravel folks who are more there for the completion and not the competition. That said, you know, the UCI comes in, it could dilute sponsor dollars and it could already, you know, overcrowd an already just packed calendar of events and force pros who m might be motivated by, you know, rainbow stripes to go to these events. That, that would be the biggest bummer. Um, I think that it, it could affect some of these other events, particularly if they're not thoughtful where they place it on the calendar, right? Like you're saying, I mean, already people's toes are getting stepped on, you know? Um, so, We'll have to see how it plays out, but my sense is that the UCI isn't there to like really develop cycling for like the everyday cyclists. It's more of for the elites, and you know, God bless them. If you want to go and race, race for you know rainbow stripes, and that motivates you, do it. But I don't think it's going to really have a huge impact on a majority of folks who are, are in, enticed by gravel right now. Yeah. doesn't yeah. motivate me at all, but that's because I'm less racer now than I used to be. Maybe 10 years ago, it might've been interesting, but not right now. Yeah. Yeah. Chasing the points. And I know I've almost forgot about this because it was so long ago, but you know, for me, the hoppers started as I was like, maybe you're at the race. We went down, down Southern California, not central was like pine flat, not pine flat here, but there was out of uh, Fresno area, right in the foothills there. 
But we went down there and we're trying to get upgrade from three to two to race on the road just so a better competitive field. And because there was so much at a road race, as a mountain biker, when you race on the road, until you're in that elite level, it felt so negative. If you're not in the in the group, then people just sit back. You're why aren't we training? And so, you know, that's when you know, and people were still friends that I knew traveling, trying to get from a five to a four and a yes. four to a three. And I was like, wait, I live in Occidental. Let let's do these rides. So I remember for several years, people would still they'd maybe do a hopper and they would go down to do a ride in Turlock or Merced to get their to get their upgrade points, chasing their points. And eventually, it was like, wait, what what am I doing? Like Javi Sanchez is a great Javier yeah. Sanchez is a great example he was a good crit racer and he's like wait i gave up my day for my kids i get one day a weekend and i did an hour crit yeah he's, no i don't think so but the gravel has given people to, a great chance around the country to start doing something and maybe never be competitive or just competitive with themselves or realize hey i i am a competitive person i have a talent and and, and i can go for it and uh, can quickly move up um I got, what, what does moving up mean? Can, 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 well, they can progress. progress. Yeah. I mean, unless they're chasing like, you know, a, a pro license, which I don't really even know how that process works anymore, because I'd also say that probably, you know, a majority of the gravel events are not sponsored by USAC. So I don't know what points you would be garnering, right. To try to upgrade. So it'd be more just to progress, you know, personally, keep, you know, redrawing that line. I, I tell this to people all the time at like, you know, unbound gravel camps, you know, just keep redrawing that line of what you think you're capable of and you'll continue to surprise yourself, you know? Um, you know this, just like I know this, like saying yes to big challenges, like biting off what you think might be a little bit more than you can chew. That's when we make the biggest gains, right? And we have the most aha moments about ourselves or life or whatever it is. But um, that's what I love about gravel. I mean, it's it's... It's this space that's encouraging all sorts of folks of, you know, from the everyday cyclist to the elite mm -hmm. cyclist to push their limits. Um, and I just feel really blessed that, you know, I fell into it when I did. It was purely dumb luck that I found gravel in 2013. Yeah, and it's been fun to, to, to see it evolve. Uh, um, you know, when, when we started the Grasshopper and calling them training rides, you know, we did things for 10 years without any permits, totally under the radar. And calling them training rides had a double meaning, double reason. One was uh, to kind of take that, not, hey, I'm not putting on a race yeah. on county roads without any permit. And the other one is to get people to just chill out a little bit, like be competitive when it mattered, but to ride in, in, in that way. And at that time, I only cared about the, the sharp end of the field with you and me and, Dun and going for that. I wasn't, and there were, you know, 30, 40, 50 people. But as it got bigger and then I had kids and then I was finishing in the middle towards the back, first in the middle to see how competitive everyone was who was finishing 20, 30, 40th. And then my second kid came along and I was riding once a month. It was the hoppers. There was one year seeing way in the back and then waiting for the very last finisher for me to have been putting them on 10, 15 years, been at the front trying to win and then seeing the last people finish. I really didn't know. I, I find myself feeling immensely joyful and proud of like created this experience for that group of people. So to see that full circle for me, and now that's really, that really guides me in, in the choices that I make and things that I do now and helps me persevere through what's become very complicated and, and pulling off an event. Well, yeah, dude. I mean, it's, it, I, that's a really awesome transformation that you have that you got to, you know, experience the race in sort of all the different 
zones of it and it makes you a better race promoter because now you understand all of the emotions as you go through the peloton right from the front to the back and it makes you be more thoughtful probably about where you put aid stations you know what's at the aid stations all those things road safety all that stuff seeing it from different different perspectives not just the pointy end yeah and having to be able to get together and and share ideas and and get information from people about the events they put on the the fact that the us putting on events, it, the the movement towards equity and inclusivity and and diversity, like I, that's incredibly mattered to me in my life and as an educator. But I never thought about it in the hoppers because I just wanted them to be fun for everybody. Luckily, that was my goal, and it it fostered that. But now to be able to articulate that and to be mindful of that and and to work towards that and like acknowledge the place and the space and like. The, and, and the other promoters, because it's not um, there's not a governing body of it, the, the the promoters need to listen to the feedback from the writers, and they do. I mean, authentically about yeah. whether it's the feed zone, is it fair, and and all that stuff. And so, it, it, that's the beauty of the growing part is that people are open to that growing of, as opposed to it's not like, hey, this is how I'm doing it, loving it or leave it. And I think that's. That's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's this new space, right, that we, both you and I and friends we know are helping shape as we speak right now through our events, through our actions, through our industry work, whatever it is. So, yeah, it's fun to be part of that. Um, you know, I want to spend a little bit of time to reminisce about, about a story. I know that, um, you know, Sometimes I feel like I only know you through your social media posts and stories because we're kind of like trains passing in the night and it, it's it's your work so much. But, you know, years back, uh, it's, well, it's been a goal of mine for a long time to get the hoppers to the point where I can teach 60%. I don't want to stop teaching. I like it. But have the bandwidth for the hoppers. And there was one year that that worked, that lined up to do that. And that's when I said, hey, I got some ideas for some stuff and you were getting some pieces in Peloton. It's like, yeah, yeah, let me know. Let me know. What do you got? So that's when I pitched the idea of riding from Arcata to Sebastopol. And it was a beautiful piece written in, in Peloton magazine. Yeah. Um, so I did have to go with when you said you were free, which I believe was the middle of November. Not the ideal weather window. Yeah. In, 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 in Northern California. But, um, you know, that truly, I know you've gotten to fly to Iceland and all over the place. But for me to, to do that with you was, was a great one. And uh, it, w- it was a difficult Difficult few days, if I recall. It was. That was. It was extremely hard. I mean, it started when we tried to leave Charles Short's airport in a <laughs> teeny plane. I, for those of you, I Miguel's brother-in-law was nicely flying us up to Arcata, but I didn't realize we were going to be in this little prop plane, and we literally had to take basically all the wheels, everything off our bikes to jigsaw them in this teeny little plane. Um, but yeah, that was just, that was just the beginning of, of our adventure. And then, yeah, then the weather went south. Herbie the love, Herbie love, Herbie the love bug with, with wings, I think is how you could think of the plane. Yeah, that was, that was quite the experience. Um, luckily I got to sit in the front, but yeah, that was, that was an amazing adventure. Um, you know, seeing the zone where you went to college, kind of like where you were, you know, fell in love with the bike. And then we just got hit with some horrendous weather, um, when we rode through Honeydew and out to Shelter Cove and finished in the dark and yeah, just, but yeah, let made me, a great story. Yeah. It did make a good story. And I want to back up. I wish we had yeah. a videographer. We, we were going to try and do that. 
right? But we couldn't have fit them in the plane. But, but <laughs> I'll, I'll have to describe this to, for, for people. So we, we were delayed. So we were sitting in my Prius, and I think it was, we were delayed because it was so foggy, right? Yeah. So we, we finally roll out to the tarmac, and I'd never flown on a small plane like that. So they quickly, we said hey to the person and just walk out on the airport. And, and your eyes were just like saucers. We looked at the plane. There was no, no back door. And what I recall was like, then there's no way. There's no way. Can we take a bus? Can we take a bus? How are we going to get up there? That is true. Yeah, uh, it's all good, Yuri. Can we pay yeah, somebody li- to drive us up there? Yeah. To the, so I had the, I had a diverge. So I didn't want to take apart my headset and handlebars. I was worried, but I remember for your bike taking off uh, seat post handlebars. We had to take the fork out. Yeah. Uh, taking the derailleur off. I think we even took the pedals off probably your bike to get it in into the back of that plane but yeah <laughs> i did not think we were going to make it in there you you were amazing and got it in there and sort of calmed me down and shoved me in the front seat and slapped the headphones on me and off we were to arcada yeah and how cool was that we landed on the airport and justin was there my buddy from uh revolution bikes in arcada yeah. with his van put put the bikes together and uh i think the only time i was scared on that well, actually, I was scared quite a few times on that week. <laughs> but when we, we finished on the dark, we hit Highway 36. We did uh, uh, Fickle Hill and Neeland and just this great gravel descent all the way down to 36. But I didn't realize how long it was from Highway 36 to Ferndale. Yeah. And that's, that's big truck Yahoo land. But the second day, I remember, so I did cut a little bit shorter. And we didn't talk very much that day, I think. So the second day, we, as soon as we went out of the hotel in Ferndale, it was pouring. So within the first minute, completely soaked. Yeah. And we had to ride down through Ferndale, Scotia, down Highway 101. And originally I had this crazy thing to add it on. The plan was to climb up the top of Grasshopper Peak, which is like a 3,000-foot climb, and then ride a, ridge, the, a dirt ridge over to the top. So I think our day it still ended up being like eight, nine hours, but that would add it on a tongue. But I didn't even say anything to you. Next thing you know, we were off and we were carrying our bikes across the creek to ride the single track. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was a really hard day. Yeah. It was wet and cold all day. Um, there was a fair amount of climbing, if I remember correctly, before we dropped into Honeydew, uh, where at the top of Panther Pass, we put every piece of rain gear on so we didn't freeze dropping down to, to Honeydew. But um you know, I would do it again. It was yeah, super fun. I need a little bit of Twilight. So I remember you, yeah. <laughs> I didn't have rain pants. You stopped to put on rain pants. I was envious. Like, I, I have to go down. I was so cold. Went into the store to get coffee was my goal, right? So I go in there and they look at me just briefly. Not like I was too weird, you know, based upon, you know, the <laughs> folks that are there. Yeah. And I was like, can, can, can I make some coffee? And she looks at me and is like, uh, we don't make coffee in the afternoon. I said, I'll, I'll buy the whole pot. And she looks at me and says, no. I'm like, what do you mean no? Yeah. I'm offering to buy a pot of coffee. Yeah. So I'm dripping. I said, the guy, we made some water. Made some, I think you planned on a stay. On a stay. I just gave you some water. I said, let's go. And we sprinted to the first yeah. climb. And- no, I, I remember rolling in and could tell by the look on your face that we weren't going to be dilly-dallying and hanging out long. So I maybe like got a Snickers and you had water and we are out of there because we were running out of daylight. Yeah, and we sprinted to that climb. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the other part that was exciting and i think that was the second the first two days we had some adventures it finished we were on the ridge we were right around paradise royale and uh, my light had worked the day before i charged it yours didn't work i turned went to turn it on and hadn't pulled a charge uh and i was like that's bad yeah and then yours remarkably worked. worked so we had a light and i remember this this is 
one of my most vivid cycling memories all time. I think to go from the ridge above Shelter Cove to Shelter Cove, I want to say it's about a 2,000 foot drop yep. in four miles. Does yep. that sound about right? And Super it's just steep. ripping pavement. Pavement. In yep. the dark. I've never des black. descended it. We have one light. I'm behind you. And I didn't know the corners. I, if I got too far back off, I was gone. <laughs> and if I was too close, I was in trouble, right? And it was just like that moment. Of and people should know Miguel's a way better descender than me to begin with. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that that was a good one. But I, I think you know the second day we had a we had a or the third day we had clear skies, yep. right, all the way into Fort Bragg where yep. Herman met us. We had a great dinner yep. at McCallum House. Yep, yeah, that was a good trip. And then 140 miles of tailwind. Yeah, yep. that was. So you've done a lot of adventures. Like if I were to say, like what what is if you say every one of the most recent one, like what, what, what's some of the, Oh, uh, well, tell me about, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm super blessed. Like I said, work and play, uh, for me are blurred. And so I have the opportunity to write for Peloton here or there, do video projects. So I've been to Iceland a few times in the last four or five years. Iceland is an amazing country. Highly recommend it. Uh, Payson just dropped a video about riding 250 miles across Iceland. He set the fastest known time, but it's a really stunning, beautiful country. Love the people. The food's really good. That's one of the favorite places I've been recently. Um, you know, I mean, I've been lucky enough to do a stage race in the South Island of New Zealand, ridden through the Southern Alps down there multiple times. I did two versions of a stage race down there. Uh, I did a 12-hour race in, in England early on in my career when I used to race for Marin Bikes, you know. So, yeah, I've been – the bike's taken me all over. But my current, like, favorite spot, which, you know, I will be in um, a fair amount, is down on the border of Mexico in Patagonia, Arizona right now, which, uh, you know, is sort of blowing up as a new gravel zone to explore. It sits at 4,000 feet. It's a town of less than 1,000. And there are gravel roads for days in one of the most uh, environmentally diverse, eco-diverse, biodiverse zones uh, in the lower 48 states. It's a really cool area. So um, I discovered it about seven years ago with my friends Heidi and Xander of the Cyclist Menu and have been going back in some capacity for the last seven years helping with camps. Um, and we recently invested in a piece of property there. So we're going to go live there for a little bit. Yeah, I can't believe that's been seven years. I remember I when you guys did your first, yeah. first trip there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the funny thing is I, you know, referenced grasshopper experiences because when we rolled in and rode around, I turned and looked at them and I was like, you guys need to put on a race here. Like this place is perfect because there's no one here. There's like no stop signs, but there's roads for days. Like you need to put on a race. And this, I did their second uh, Spirit World 100 this year, and it was super successful. They had like 250 people. They do amazing things for the local community there. Um, they work with this organization called the Borderlands Restoration, which brings in uh, plant life to help uh, re-diversify um, some of the plant life there. And so, yeah, Heidi and Xander are doing a lot of cool things down in Patagonia. Yeah, and going to the desert, you know, it'd been a long time for me, and I was just in uh, Tucson. Tucson, and then and then Sedona, and the visit my mom in in in, um, in Las Vegas, and Tara and I went for quite a few winters to uh, Saline Valley. I'd bring my bike, and this was back I don't know in the in the early '90s, and uh, that feeling I've I've always been a redwood coastal person, but to get into the desert and to not have anything above you but the sky, it it slows down the thought process there's something about 
there's a reason why people move to the desert, live in the desert, not just the warm weather, but spiritually, this, this way of, of perceiving space and time, it just feels, feels different. I, when people ask me about what makes it so special for me, I always circle back to like, it feels really grounding when I go there um, and calming and there's not a lot of sound. You're on the, you know, there's not a lot of distractions and it's just, uh, it like helps center me and I, I really enjoy just spending time there and life's too short as you know, to not like do things that put a smile on our face and um, I'm super excited that I've, you know, been able to be a part of the, you know, growth of that zone a little bit and, and watch it grow and enjoy it. And I'm excited to get down there because as we were talking about earlier, before we went on the mic, I mean, Tucson in that region is a huge hotspot for winter training and a lot of the pros that I work with will be down there. So that's where, you know, for me, once again, work and play will intersect is that I'll get to go and bring product and train with some riders and, get some content, you know, cause it's all about social media now these days. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, with the development, um, of, of gravel bikes and of tires and of wheels. So it's not, you're able to do longer. You could have a base block in an area where you could be riding mostly gravel roads, whereas you're not going to show up in Moab and call that your base training, no. you know, um, so it's it's unique. I imagine that even road pros who necessarily aren't going to be gravel racers are looking for places that give them a chance to to mix it up. Particularly now to circle back to the Grand Prix, you have the EF guys, I think Lachlan and I, maybe there's one other who got selected, you know, they're road pros, right? But they're more adventure. But like you're saying, they may spend more time down in the desert now riding their gravel bike on those roads because it'll help them better prepare for this diverse Grand Prix offering that th- is coming up. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the trails that we rode in, in, that I rode in Tucson and then in Sedona, yeah, it was just, just beautiful to be in the desert again. And there was a part of me during COVID that I won't say that I enjoyed it. <laughs> um, uh, it's incredibly difficult times for the family and for work and for the business and as an educator. But like many people, the slowing down, of things and for me loving so much where I live in Sebastopol and in Sonoma County and riding getting out for a road ride felt like going back 25 years and and it's just there's still quiet spots or just going someplace but the freneticness of the Bay Area where we have our family and our livelihood um, is this always going to be home for you now that you can go back and forth maybe now you can go back and forth you see yourself Petaluma is still your base. Petaluma is still my base. Yeah. Petaluma is my home. You you mentioned you know finding quiet pockets, road riding. I mean, people might be surprised. I spend like ninety eight percent of my time on my road bike in Sonoma County, like west of Petaluma, uh, riding my road bike because that's the most efficient way for me to train. It's also on some of the, as you know, the, some of the most beautiful roads in the world. You know, right now, I mean, that Nor- whole region is- Northern Marin, Southern Sonoma, yeah, Tamales. All, all of that down to Tam, yeah, Tam, up to Inverness, Jenner, all of that zone. I mean, it looks like Ireland or Scotland right now. It's, it's gorgeous. Uh, it's lambing season. Um, the grass is going off. It's, it's just beautiful. And there's hardly any traffic. 
um, out there. And so that will always be home. I grew up, for those that don't know, I grew up on a farm out on Chilino Valley Road in the early 70s. So I'm really rooted in Petaluma, but I do see myself spending, you know, a few weeks at a time, a month here or there uh, down in the desert um, just to, you know, enjoy that. Like I said, take part in some training camps, events. I hear people do that at your age. <laughs> Back and forth to the desert. Oh, wait, we're the same age. <laughs> they, they, we are the same age. But yeah, they call those, they call us snowbirds. Yeah, snowbirds. So I guess I'm becoming a snowbird. And they know it's you're part from, of the evolution. And they know you're from California. They, for sure, because I drive a sprinter. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it, it, it is a. Uh, Nice to share or to reminisce a little bit. Not wearing the wearing these nice these nice fans. I remember sleeping in my Volvo, nineteen seventy eight Volvo, or driving with my Volkswagen with the holes in. It. I I don't I don't take for granted the the traveling in those. Yeah. Hey Yuri, I'm going to transition a little bit to sure. to a Hit piece me. I have here before we jump into talking about you know plans for next year. But um, it's called this and that. Where this I'm just going to give you two things, and uh, you're going to pick one of them. You can think about it a little bit, or just. You could just nail rapid it. fire. Let's rapid see. fire. Rapid fire. Okay, mountain bike or gravel? Gravel. We lost you. We've lost you. <laughs> I knew you were gonna judge, dude. I knew you were gonna judge. It's okay. It's still at my core, dude. Still at my core. Mountains or ocean? Oh, uh, mountains. Tacos or pasta? Oh, tacos. Solo or group ride? I've been a lone wolf a lot lately, so I'm gonna say even though I'm really social, that's a that's a that's a tough one. I'm kind of but like I'm full lone wolf lately when it comes to riding. So yeah, solo. Paper maps or ride with GPS, Strava, computer. Paper maps. I love like you. I know you love maps. Paper maps. I love. I ha- want to share a quick story. I'm gonna upend this for a second, but. I grew up with parents who had this ma- massive, like, uh, Bible, National Geographic almanac. And I grew up without TV. So that was sort of like my TV because you could just flip to somewhere in the world. And it was this huge National Geographic map book. And I think that's where I first fell in love with maps. Nice. Okay. Well, I'm yeah. going gonna, gonna to tag on to that yeah. before. The Northern California Gazetteer, right? So we started going down to Downeyville in 94. Five, maybe something around there. Like I'd bring books, but I would just read my when I'd go to Tahoe or my gazetteer. I would just memorize. Like I remember put, drawing my finger over the Hennis Pass Road, like all the time. Oh, this goes. These I didn't at the time ride, but little pieces of all those. But oh man, yeah. maps, paper maps. Yep. Yeah, but you know it is nice having the, the the ones that don't get you lost and actually let you know where you are. Like the road that says is there is actually there. Yeah. No. Totally. <laughs> I've been there too. <laughs> All right, uh, NorCal or desert? Oh, NorCal. Climb or descend? Oh, I'm, <laughs> if people know what I look like, I'm descend. I am not a climber. I need. I almost put a third. Climb, descend, or flat? Oh, I'm flat. I uh, love the flats. That's where I excel at gravel. Yeah, I like being behind you on the flats. Yep. Okay, I know, I'm going to keep interrupting these. This reminded me of, of, of the old Kaz stories, right? So we, we rode 20 old Kazes together. And if people, most people know that that was like the defining ride of Grasshopper. So, right. So when I was competing at those, so I knew if I was ahead of you, or if I was behind you, right. So <laughs> it, and I, because it started with the climb, I'd often be ahead of you, of right. Of course you would. So when I came over old, you'd, you'd just do Willow Creek, you'd climb up old cows, you'd descend into the creek. And there's all these moments of like, how hard do you go to stay with people? And you drop into the creek and you'd climb out. So getting into Casadero, 
my assessment was based was two things. One, who was I with? How strong was it? How many people? And then I'd have to decide if it wasn't a winning hand, Yuri is behind me. <laughs> He's coming. <laughs> and you'd always come with the train, right? So if there's a group and they weren't working well together, like, yeah. come on, pull through. I'm yeah. thinking, you're not going to do it for me, bro. Yuri's behind me. Yuri's coming. Yeah. And it probably happened four or five times. I think that's possibly the genesis of my nickname, U-Boat, maybe Garrison, you know? Like, you knew I was lurking out there and I might get you at some point, yeah. Yeah, and it was always fun in those because I'd get through there and you'd have, like, cross racers and you'd have messengers like Chaz who... People, people trying to create order out of the chaos. You'd have mountain bikers, people who'd never ridden in pace lines. Like if you got with a fishing group, it was good, but you had like 20 miles of flats, right? Yep. So you weren't going to have any coaching clinics in that moment. Anyways, <laughs> that was, that was fun. Okay. This is taking a long time, but That's this is okay. more fun. It's, it's, it's priming, priming things up here. All right. Here's, here's a good one for you. Fix it or bring it in. Bring it in for sure. I am so not mechanical. Ask any of the mechanics that have worked on my bikes over the years. Glenn, Paunch, Cycle Church, Tim Nichols, Matt Rossi, all the poor folks that have had to work on my clapped out bikes. Like mechanics would run when they would see me come into like NorCal because they knew like as soon as they touched my bike, they were going to be with it for like the next four hours. I could just imagine Glenn giving you that look. <laughs> You know, you know that look, right? Oh, I know. I know the look. Yeah. I got, the last time I got that look, I always had been one to fix my own bikes, right? Until, it got, and, until the forks, like, they would change. And I remember trying to do one of my rock shocks, and he just looked at me. He's like, Meg, bring it in. Bring it in. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so bring it in. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Um, have to, get to. Oh, get to. Yeah, get to. Yeah, brother. For sure, we get to. Astronaut or sailor? Oh, that's a tough one because I get seasickness really bad. And it's ironic because I was sort of grew up on a boat. My dad was into boats uh, early on when I was first born before we moved to Petaluma. But like, I also have a buddy who calls me cosmonaut. So I think I'm going to go with astronaut. Yeah, yeah and there's Yuri Gargarin, who was like one of the first Russian astronauts. So I guess astronaut, because I'd be seasick the whole freaking time uh, on the boat. New frontiers. Yeah, <laughs> totally. That, that's good stuff. Oh, man, so many stories here. Tell me a little bit. Um, first of all, I'll go to the back up and then give you a chance to talk about, you know, what's coming up. Um, this year, is, last two years have been kind of topsy-turvy, and we're, we're like really planning for next year. And uh, I'm sure you've got some beautiful things on the calendar. Like, what's up for yourself as an individual? And like you mentioned, well, you and your job, they all blend together. So what's up for uh, 2023? 20, 20, uh, oh, wait, 2022 is 2022, next. I know. It's been so, so slow, this 2020 and 2021. Um, so 2022 is shaping up to be a really good year, actually. You know, as a company, Goo, we're starting to see – you know, some more events come back online, um, which is really nice. So I know I will be returning as a ride guide to the Unbound camp, which I helped start like seven years ago. So, you know, you'll have 30 folks who come to camp for four days and you teach them all the tips and tricks and ride with them. So I'll do that in April. We'll be at Sea Otter. Um, I have a media project I'm going to do down in Patagonia, Arizona with Velocio uh, in early February. When we go down there, I'm going to do a uh, credit card 
bikepacking, e-gravel bike, bikepacking trip um, with my wife, who is going to ride the e-bike. And we're going to ride from Patagonia to Bisbee to Tombstone and then back uh, and document it. Um, I'll be at Unbound again. I'll do, I've been going to every Unbound since 2013. So I'll go back and do the 200 again. Um, And then, you know, work-wise, you know, Unbound is kind of work. Sea Otter will be work. I'll be leading rides and stuff like that. Um, Be out at Leadville. I won't race Leadville, but I go there and work and help coordinate stuff with our athletes. Um, And that just gets us into August. Uh, Man, I'm going to Scotland this year, too, to hike the West Highlands Trail with Vanessa's dad. He's taking us over there right after Unbound. And we're going to do like an 11-day hike along this really iconic famous trails dave's scottish and has been and we postponed last year um so we're hoping that gets to happen so uh, i'm not much of a hiker but i'm looking forward to hiking through scotland with dave it'll be super fun uh so yeah a lot of good stuff you know as i go through this sort of transition from less racer to more like adventurer content guy um you know i've had some like projects fall in my lap. I'm working on this big piece up in the La Sierra, Sierra Buttes Trail Stewardship, you know, speaking of folks like yourself, you know, Greg Williams is the wizard of Downeyville, the founder of that, founder of Sierra Buttes Trail Stewardship, and I'm doing a big piece on the Connected Communities Trail System up there. Yeah, I just read that in Peloton. That was a good good story. Yeah, thanks. So um, there'll be a second chapter of that coming out, and we're working on about a 10-minute video right now that'll hopefully drop in March. And we hope to use that, you know, to inspire people to go up there because much of that just got torched in the Dixie fire. We have some of the last footage. We rode there in June, two weeks before that fire hit up there. So we're going to do a second chapter uh, after Lost and Found uh, of the video. Um, But yeah, just fun, exciting stuff, you know, trying to like do things that put a smile on my face or allow me to connect with people or places um, that inspire me. So that's what I'm going to be doing. Less racing. I will race a few times. Yeah. I'm going to do the Huffmaster. I'm coming back to Arizona so I can do the Huffmaster, you know, the 50 plus. That's a good Go throw one. it down. That was one of my favorite races of this last year to do. That was super fun. Um, yeah. So, I'm, yeah. I'm, that's, I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear that you'll be there. And uh, yeah. I was, as you were talking about that, I was just thinking that sounds like you're, yourself and, and I'm really enjoying, you know, I've, I have fitness goals, but like, staying steady till the day I die and not having so much performance goals anymore. Uh, for a long time, it was kind of back and forth in between struggling. And I, and I feel good about that right now. It's a nice space to be in where yeah. it's like, yeah, I've got the base. I can get some high end stuff, but not be disappointed at, you know, yeah. certain things. We have to let go at some point of that, you know, and it's, it's a harder uh, transition for some, you know, it takes us longer um, but you know, uh, it's, it's, it's been coming, it's been a long time coming for me. I'm less relevant at the front end of gravel, you know, gravel gave me a little bit of extra life in my career. You know, it opened up some doors for me, but you know, shortly thereafter, you know, you had the Ted Kings and the Stetnas dropping in and Colin Strickland's and the horsepower right. just went through the roof. So those guys are rad and um, I can't hang there anymore. So it, that helped sort of force the issue with me of of aging out and just trying to let go of, like you said, the real performative goals. Yeah. And um, but, but, but 
but like but, at the Huff, the but? but at the Huff Master, <laughs> we all like to empty our tank and turn ourselves inside out. And yes, I saw you lining up. I've seen you a couple in the past going, you're racing pro. You know, there's a, there's a hundred people in, in our age group <laughs> to compete with 50 plus. Yeah. In most places of the grasshoppers, the 40 plus, the 50 plus, the 60 plus is freaking stacked. Super stacked. <laughs> I mean, I ended up, I think sixth and I was on pretty good fitness, but I will say not to humble brag, but like the 50 plus, we caught a ton of the age groups ahead of us. You know, because we like you, you got but you were. Yeah, talking. Thurman said they had some of the fastest times. We did outside of the pros. Yeah, the we, the we, fifty plus had some of the fastest. Yeah, times. we we totally did, and you know, some of that came down to what you talked about earlier: dynamics. We know how to ride together. A bunch of us knew each other, so there was that. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you say we we've let go, but still, yeah, you're in the yeah. fifty plus, and there's still you know a bunch of hammers and. I, you know, I like to uh, empty my tank, you know, when I can. And so I'll continue to do that. But like you talked about earlier, and this go- actually goes back to one of, you know, our good friends, you know, the godfather, Raji. He gave me sage advice years and years ago when he raced on the Ibis team. He's like, never take your foot off the accelerator. Like, just never let yourself get too far out of fitness. Just always keep a nice little bit of pressure there and you'll be okay. And so that I've always kept that in the back of my head, like, you know, just always, you know, keep riding your bike when you can. Absolutely. And keep, and, and, and keep it fun. Keep it fun. If it's not fun, like you should be doing something else. And, you know, for when you're going through that transition of being less racer, it can seem not as fun maybe because you're buttoned up against what you thought you should do or what you think you're capable of. And, and maybe these expectations that aren't realistic anymore And I'm so glad I'm kind of like beyond that now. And it's more in the fun part. And like, if I end up on the podium, that's a bonus. If I don't, like I still had a great day out there. Um, So yeah, and it's fun just to be in a different place in my career too, where I guess I'm seen as, you know, like sort of like the old guy that's been around now in gravel, which is ironic because I did did my first uh, Unbound in 13. Um, and that was that event's eighth year in existence. So gravel had been happening, just wasn't really that well known about outside of the Midwest. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it and don't plan to slow down any, anytime soon. Right on brother, man. I really appreciate your time sitting down with you and I know that we'll have a future podcast, uh, uh, where we can share some, share some more stories. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Maybe. All right. Peace, Jerry. Peace. <laughs>